If you please open your Bibles to the book of Isaiah. We're going to be looking at chapter 12. If you're using the Pew Bible, it's found on page 576. And we'll be looking at the entire chapter today. And as promises, when we got past Advent and got past Christmas, I would return to where we left off in Isaiah. And three weeks ago, we were looking at Isaiah 11, so we're going to look at Isaiah 12 today. And just to refresh you on the context of the reading, in this section in chapters 7 through 12, it deals with a prophecy that was given by Isaiah to King Ahaz. He was the king of Judah. This was the southern kingdom of God's people. And Ahaz was facing a crisis. There was a coalition uh, that was mounting against him that was going to invade his country. A coalition consisting of the apostate northern kingdom of Israel and the pagan Syrian uh, kingdom. And they invaded Judah and they had laid siege to the capital city of Jerusalem. And God had told Ahaz through Isaiah not to fear. God had told him that he would not let his city fall. And all Ahaz had to do was to trust. Trust in the Lord. Trust that God himself would remove the threat. And knowing that Ahaz's faith was weak, God offered Ahaz a sign. And he leaves the sign up to Ahaz. He says, whatever you need, whatever you need for, to believe my promise, I will give it. But Ahaz refuses to ask for a sign. He pretends to, to sound pious. He says, I will not ask for a sign. I will not put the Lord to the test. But the real reason, the real reason Ahaz didn't ask for a sign is because he didn't want a sign. See, Ahaz had already decided what he was going to do. And it was not to trust in the Lord, but rather it was to trust in the Assyrian Empire. Now, that's not the same as Assyria. Assyria was this huge empire. They they were the superpower of the time. And he was going to put his trust in them. And when Ahaz refused to ask for a sign, God actually does give a sign, but not for Ahaz. This is a sign for future generations. And so that they can recognize God's ultimate solution to their problem. Ultimate security. And that's the sign of the virgin. Remember, the virgin shall conceive and give birth to a son. And his name shall be called Emmanuel. God with us. And because of Ahaz's unbelief and his seeking security, not in the sovereign God, but in a human king and the king of Assyria. Because of this foolish choice. God still is going to keep his promise. He's not going to allow his people to be defeated by this coalition. But now the threat shifts from Israel and Syria to Assyria. And from this point on, God's people face a new and a much more dangerous threat. They have this threat from the, from the empire, the Assyrian empire. And in the 11 chapters that we've studied so far, we see this same format. God's prophet Isaiah, in the role of a a prosecuting attorney, he brings charges against God's people. And charges because of their sin, and due to their sin, and due to their breaking God's covenant obligations with them. And next we see, after that, we see God's judgment pronounced. So they sin, he, he, he mentions what their sin are, and then he pronounces the judgment on those sin. A judgment that is usually executed by, by a foreign enemy. And the last part of the formula is that we see grace. We see God's grace. We see forgiveness. We see redemption extended, not to all, but extended to a remnant. And a remnant that's just as guilty. Just as guilty as the rest of the nation. But this remnant has received mercy rather than judgment. Has received grace rather than justice. And it's this last part of this formula. It's this grace and mercy that we see today in chapter 12. But chapter 12 shows it from a different perspective. 
What we've seen so far is, is, is God is the one who's, who's, who makes redemption possible. We've seen the mercy in the, in the child born, the son given, in Emmanuel, child born of the virgin, in the root and branch of, of Jesse. And all of this is pointing toward the, the Savior, is all pointing toward Christ, the final and ultimate solution to our rebellion against God. But what we see in 12 is different. What we see in chapter 12 is the response of those who are redeemed. We see the, the change that has taken place in those who have received God's mercy, those who have received God's grace. So they're no longer the same. They're no longer rebels hating God and hating his law, but rather they become sons, they become daughters. They love him, they praise him, they worship him, they thank him for his grace. And for the Christian, for you and I here, for those of us who are a new creation, having been redeemed by Christ's blood, offered to us by grace alone, received by us by faith alone, and live for the glory of God alone. This chapter describes us. It is our response to the grace that is given to us. So here now, chapter 12, the word of the Lord. You will say in that day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for though you were angry with me, your anger turned away, that you might comfort me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. For the Lord God is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. With joy, you will draw water from the wells of salvation. And you will say in that day, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the peoples. Proclaim that his name is exalted. Sing praises to the Lord, for he has done gloriously. Let this be made known to all the earth. Shout and sing for joy, O inhabitants of Zion, for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. Let's pray. Almighty God, you have redeemed us. You have shown us grace. You have shown us favor. And we praise you. Lord, I pray that you will soften our hearts and we will get a glimpse of this magnificent grace that you have given to us. Father, I pray, pray anoint my feeble words that they will somehow be able to communicate the, the richness and, and, the, and the amazingness of this passage that we're looking at. And Father, I know each of us have dull hearts. Or we're tired. We stayed up late. And Father, I pray that we will have an encounter with you. We will see you. We will see you afresh. And we understand that these words are written to us. This is the response of your redeemed. And Father, we pray that you will be pleased and you will be glorified by this time. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, it's so easy for us to get distracted. It's so easy for us to forget who we are. It's so easy for us to forget whose we are. See, this world and this world's way of thinking, that becomes our reality. It becomes really the, the framework for us to understand everything, understand our lives, live our lives. And when we do this, God becomes small. He becomes a, a distant thought, maybe reserved for Sunday morning, but really neglected during the rest of the week. And then we're consumed with the problems. We're, we're consumed with the pleasures. We're consumed with the temptations that are right in front of us, that are, that are seen through, through fleshly eyes. Our desires, our goals, our motivations, our methods become indistinguishable. Indistinguishable from those who do not know God. And what happens is we become functional atheists. Functional atheists. And if we're honest, we'll, we'll admit that. We go through the work, go through the week, and don't really think much of God. We are functional atheists. Now, we may go through the formality of prayer, 
but we really don't expect it to, to accomplish anything. Or we may only turn to it when we've exhausted all the practical means of help. And then we have nothing else. We might as well pray. We trust in ourselves. We trust in our ingenuity. We trust in our, our planning, our hard work, and our craftiness. This is where we find our security. And are we any different than Ahaz? Are we any different than King Ahaz? Right? If we were in his situation, we like to think, no, no, we would trust the Lord. We would, we would rest in the Lord. We would not waver in our faith. We wouldn't look to other options. We wouldn't look to Assyria. No, we would trust in God to save us. But would we? Would we really? And it's really hard to know. It's hard to know how we react until that day. Until that day. You see, every day is not that day. Most of life is not that day. See, most of life is ordinary. Most of life is in our control. Most of life we can live on our own. We can, we can live in the illusion that somehow we don't need God. We can live in the illusion that somehow everything is under our control. We're okay. Now, the reality is the reality is we need God every hour, every minute, every second, as I say, every nanosecond. We need him for our next breath, for our next beat of our heart. In fact, the, the entire universe would dissolve and crumble into non-existence without God's continual and active preservation of it. That's the reality. But during these times of peace and, and during these times, these ordinary times, we deceive ourselves. We forget about God. We think that, and, and we live no differently than those who do not know God. And as a result of this faithlessness, we lose our joy. We lose our peace. We, we fail to enjoy that, that sweet fellowship with the triune God that, that we were meant to enjoy forever. And instead, instead we, we, we feel anxious, constantly anxious, constantly unsettled, constantly overwhelmed. Again, we are no different than the unbeliever. And worse still, worse still, because of this lack of faith, we lose our power. We lose our Holy Spirit-enabled power to be salt and light to this dying world. We neglect our calling. We forfeit the opportunity to proclaim the gospel. We forfeit the opportunity to make disciples of the nation. But the most dangerous part of the way we often live, indistinguishable from those who do not know God, most dangerous part, we cannot know for certain. We can't know for certain we actually belong to God. We can't know for certain that we will be ready on that day. So when is that day? Well, that day is the day of crisis. It's the, it's the day that is not ordinary. It's the day when we cannot handle everything on our own. It's the day when we are overwhelmed, and it will happen to every single one of us. For the original audience here, that day was the day when the Assyrians were invading Judah. It was the day when they faced God's judgment. In chapter 7, Isaiah uses the word in that day in verses 18 and 20 and 23. And basically what this is to describe, the various horrors associated with the Assyrian invasion, which is, is the result of God's judgment against the sin on his covenant people. But we also see the use of in that day to refer to the time of grace the grace that was offered to the remnant. We see this in chapter 10, verse 20, when the remnant returns to the Lord. We see it in chapter 11, verse 11, when the Lord will extend his hand yet a second time to recover the remnant of his people in the foreign lands. And we see that in that day used in chapter 11, verse 10, to describe when the root of Jesse 
shall stand as a signal for the people of all nations. And this is pointing, this is pointing to the only source. The source of grace, the root and the stem of Jesse, who is the Lord Jesus Christ himself, as we've discussed a few weeks ago. Well, the passage we're studying this morning, it starts with in this day, in that day. Take a look at the beginning of verse 1 of chapter 12. It says, you will say in that day. Now for the Christian, in that day is today. Because today we have received grace. Today we stand in grace. For the Christian, in that day is the day of crisis. It is the day of grace. It is the ordinary day when we're, we're tempted to think that we've got it all under control. And it is also the day when we are completely overwhelmed and don't know how we can take another step. The response of the redeemed repl- applies to every day. Reply, reply, applies to all days. Another thing to notice here is that the word you, that we have the first word of the verse, this word is singular. You, pro- you probably have a note in your Bibles to tell you this. <clears throat> and so why does it matter? Why does it matter if this word is singular? It matters because this is not a general response given to a generic people. It is specific. It is individualist. It, if you are a Christian, if you are redeemed, this is your personal response. And let's look at this response. Look at the rest of verse 1. These words, if, again, if we're Christians, these words should be our words. I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for though you were angry with me, your anger turned away, that you might comfort me. And first thing, notice here, our response, the response of the redeemed, it starts with thanks. It starts with thanks. It, doesn't, it, it starts with gratitude. It recognizes that we are not entitled to grace. It recognizes that we don't deserve God's mercy. It is all of grace. And so we give thanks. We give gratitude. In fact, we recognize that we don't deserve God's judgment. We realize that God was angry with us, and justly so. See, there's no presumption here. There's no thinking that through our obedience or through our gifts or through our service or through our greatness or motivation or intention or or anything else that somehow we deserve God's favor. We recognize that it is all of grace. In fact, lack of gratitude and prideful presumption, this is the root of really one of the most horrific judgments we read of of all in Scripture. It is the hardening that occurs, the hardening that we read of in Romans chapter 1. And it's it's a judgment that I fear that our nation is experiencing at this very moment. It's a a hardness to to even, even conceive of what God is saying, even seeing it. Romans chapter 1 says, For although they knew God, they did not honor him. They did not give him thanks. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. You see, failure to have gratitude, this entitlement, hardens us. It, it, it turns us, it, 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 it makes it impossible for grace to penetrate into hard hearts. But the Christian, the Christian, the person who has experienced God's grace, who has been redeemed, he recognizes that we deserve, we, we, we merit absolutely nothing. Everything we have is solely due to God's unmerited favor to us. And as such, we are We are filled with thanksgiving. We are overwhelmed with praise. Praise that his anger has been turned away and that he himself is the one who comes and comforts us. And verse 2 articulates specifically what we are thankful for. Verse 2 says, Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and I will not be afraid. 
For the Lord God is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. And, and there's so much here. There's so much here. And, and, and I think if we could just grasp what this verse is saying, if we could just internalize it, if we could understand the magnificence, it would transform our lives. Nothing short of, of transforming our lives. So we no longer be <clears throat> indistinguishable from the world. We no longer live like it and think like the world. We would recognize that we are unique. We would recognize that we are highly favored. That we are, and I think this would fill us with, with an indescribable peace, an indescribable joy, a, a secure, a sense of, of overwhelming security. And, and it would give us power. It would give us Holy Spirit power that is needed to fulfill the calling as a witness to the light in this fallen world. It says, God is my salvation. We say it all the time, right? We read it all the time. We hear it all the time. But do we really comprehend what it's saying? God is my salvation? It's saying, God, the the all-powerful, the all-knowing, the all-good, the all-holy, the all-loving creator and sustainer of the universe, it's him. He is my security. He is my salvation. It's not my own abilities. My own abilities are feeble. It's not my own resources and money, even if they're great compared to others. They're still limited. It's not that I'm a citizen of the United States of America, the most powerful nation in the world. No. It's not my technology. It's not medicine. It's not my knowledge. It's not all these things that we look for in this fallen world. All of these things are utterly insignificant compared to God. God, he alone is my salvation. And if you're a Christian, he is your salvation. And this is the reality for the person who is a new creation in Christ. God is our salvation. Whom shall we fear? If God is for us, who can be against us? But sadly, sadly, far too many Christians are fearful. Far too many Christians are miserable. Far too many Christians are powerless because we get distracted. We get distracted by the world's cares and concerns and values rather than resting in this truth that God is our salvation. And the next verse, uh, the next line of verse 2 tells us how we can internalize this reality, how we can feel this reality every day, how we can experience this objective reality, this objective reality of our union with Christ. It says, I will trust and not be afraid. See, it's an act of the will. It's an act of the mind. It's an act of faith. I will trust God. I will trust his word. I will trust that if I am Christ, if I am Christ, Christ himself is my salvation. And because of this objective reality, I will not be afraid. I cannot be afraid. Now, this is, this is easier said than done, is it not? It's, we could say it, we can, we can hear it, we can say, oh yeah, of course. But then when the testing comes, we don't do it. Much easier said than done. And why is that? It's because we keep forgetting this reality. We keep getting distracted by the world. We get distracted by the flesh. We get distracted by the devil. So you're like Peter. Think of the Apostle Peter when he was walking on the water. As long as he, as long as he kept his, his gaze on Jesus, as, as focused on Jesus, he was at peace. And he was able to obey Jesus' command. And what was Jesus' command? It was to walk on water. Now, walking on water is something impossible for us to do. We cannot do that by nature. No matter how hard we try, no matter how much we think, we cannot walk on water. But he had the power. As long as he was looking at Jesus, he had the power to obey Jesus and walk on water. As he was focused on Jesus, and he trusted in Jesus. And Peter was able to be obedient. And notice Peter had no fear. 
whatsoever. As he was focused on Jesus, as he was walking on the water. Once he took his eyes off Jesus, once he looked at the waves, once he heard the wind, Peter's filled with fear. He's filled with doubt. He said, I can't walk on water. This is impossible. What am I thinking? I'm crazy. I got to get back in that boat. I got to, this is not realistic. That's what he's thinking. And that's when Peter began to sink. He was still saved. Jesus grabbed him. Jesus pulled him up. But Peter lost his power. Peter lost his peace. Peter could no longer be obedient to his master because he took his eyes off Christ. My friends, the same thing happens to us. Our faith is so weak. See, we're not single-mindedly focused on our Lord. And rather, what we do is we get distracted by all the things around us. And we start thinking like the world. And the Lord knows our weakness. And look at the encouragement, the encouragement we are given in, in the next line of this verse. And here we see the reason for our trust and how we can remain focused on the Lord when these distractions try, try to creep in and take our eyes off of Jesus. It says, for the Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. And you may have a note in your Bibles here next to where it says the Lord God. See, the Hebrew here is, is kind of a unique construction. It's actually, it says Yahweh. And we know the word Yahweh. It's God's covenant name. It's usually written in, in your Bibles as Lord in all kind of small capital letters, but small capital letters. And Yah is a contraction of that covenant name. And this, again, this is a rare construction, but basically what it is is a double use of God's covenant name. It's basically saying Yahweh, Yahweh. So why is this important? Remember, as we've seen in other places, repetition in Scripture indicates emphasis. Repetition is emphasis. Such as we saw in chapter 6, when the seraphim are looking at God and calling him holy, holy, holy. That is emphasizing God's holiness. Well, here the repetition of God's covenant name, it emphasizes God's covenant faithfulness to his people. And here's the really cool part. See, the covenant-keeping, double-emphasized God, he is my strength. It's not me. See, I'm weak. I'm often distracted. I'm like Peter. I'm sinking, looking at the ways. But thankfully, thankfully, it's not up to me. It's not due to my strength. Yah Yahweh, he is my strength, and he will do it. And not only is he my strength, it says he is my song. What's that mean? Well, song here represents our joy. The Lord is our song. The, the, the Lord himself, he is our joy. Think about that. The Lord is our joy. Again, why do we so seldom experience joy? Why even as Christians are we not always singing? We should always be singing to the Lord as Christians because what we have. We should be like David dancing before the ark, praising God for his amazing goodness. So why are we not doing this? Why are we so dour? Why are we so stressed? Why are we so miserable all the time? Because we take our eyes off of Jesus. We look for our joy elsewhere. We say, oh, we don't need my joy. It's not going to be found in Jesus. It's going to be found somewhere else. It's going to be found in myself. It can be found in my possessions. It can be found in my abilities, in my circumstances. It can be found in all things except in the only one, the one we are in, in which we are totally secure, the one who is unchangeable, the one who is dependable, the Lord Jesus Christ himself, the triune God. He is our joy. He is our song. In him we are, we are filled with continual and unending joy. Look at verse 3. I love verse 3. Here's where it gets real exciting. Verse 3 says, With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. 
See, in this verse, the, the, the speaker shifts. In verses 1 and 2, the speaker was the individual Christian. Now the speaker is the Lord. And it's not just to individual Christians, but the Lord here is now speaking to his elect among the nations. See the you here? The you here is plural. It's not singular like it was in verse, verse 1. It's plural. You say, so what, what does that mean? Why, why, does, this, why does this say that he's, he's, uh, he's speaking to the nations? He's, couldn't he be speaking to the covenant people in that? You know, how, how do we know that he's not still, the, the covenant people are still not the subject of this verse? How do we know the references to the nations? Well, we know that the answer is the references to this drawing water from the well. And what should that remind you of? It should remind you what Mike just read for us a few minutes ago from the Gospel of John. It's, it's a pointer to the Gospel of John in his encounter with the Samaritan woman at the well. In John chapter 4, who is the one who is drawing water from the well? It's the woman. It's the Samaritan woman. And this woman here represents all those who are dressed in this verse. And she represents those who, who previously did not know the Lord. But now, now salvation has gone out, has gone out to them. And salvation is offered to her. See, Samaritans, they were not part of God's covenant people. They were actually, when, when, when the northern tribe of Israel went apostate, when they fell to the Assyrians, the Assyrians removed them, most, took most of them out of there, and put others, foreigners, into that land. And the, the few Israelites that were, were remaining, they intermarried. So they were no longer considered part of the covenant people. Jesus says to the woman in, in John 4, 2, says, you worship what you do not know. They did not know God. He says, we, we worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. And in Jesus' interaction with this woman at the well, we see an indication that the kingdom of God is now expanding. It's going beyond just the Jews. It's going beyond just the people of Israel. It is eventually going to go out to all people in the world. And Jesus offers the Samaritan woman not just water from the well, but he offers her living water. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give will become in him a spring of water welling up to everlasting life. And this offer of living water, this is the offer of salvation that Jesus is giving her. Jesus himself, he is the living water. Jesus is offering her salvation. Jesus is her salvation. God is her salvation. And as you see, it's so called. The source is the same. The salvation is the same. For the covenant people, God is the source. God is the salvation. For those outside the covenant, those elect, God is their salvation. It is the same. Salvation comes from God. And salvation has gone beyond just the covenant people to God's elect in all nations. And what, what do the people say? What is their response to this salvation that they receive? Well, verse 4 gives us the response. Again, you here is plural. So verse 4 says, And you will say in that day, Give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the peoples. Proclaim that his name is exalted. Again, this verse starts within that day. And that's the day of crisis, or that's the day of grace. Or for the Christian, that's every day. This is the response of God's redeemed. And this response starts as it started before. It starts with thanks. It starts with gratitude. Give thanks to the Lord. Give thanks to Yahweh, the covenant God, his covenant name. Give thanks. See, those who are outside the covenant are now brought into the covenant. Those who are not a people are now his people through faith in Christ. They have become his people. 
And what is the response of those who were once outside but are now brought into the covenant? Is it for them to close the door behind them? Is it, is it to hide this treasure that they found so that only they can enjoy it? Is it hoarding all the blessings for themselves? Absolutely not. Look at the next words of the verse. It says, call upon his name. They're proclaiming to all, call upon his name. There is a desire to make him known. Make him known to still those who are on the outside. They found it and they want everyone to come and know. It says, make known his deeds among the peoples. Proclaim that his name is exalted. See, those who receive God's grace cannot help but share it. We cannot help but proclaim it to all, to all peoples. And this is the amazing reality that, that God is our salvation, that God is our joy, that God is our identity, that God is our, our, our security and our value. That's what everyone is looking for. And we have the answer. We cannot contain it. We have to proclaim it. And this amazing fact, this amazing privilege is not just for the Jews. It's not just for the few people who go to church. It is offered to all. This is now the time of grace. It is offered to all the world. It is open. It is available to all. Scripture tells us all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And really what we're seeing here is worship. We're seeing worship, this thanking, this sharing, this joy. It's the, it's the natural overflow of praising God. And this is the natural reaction to grace. This is what will happen. Praise is the natural response to grace. Worship is the natural response to grace. We praise God. We must praise God. We cannot not praise God. In verse 5, it says, Sing praises to the Lord, for he has done gloriously. Let this be made known to all the earth. We must share. We must proclaim what he has done. We must make it known, make it known to all the earth. Jesus said, no one lights a lamp and hides it under a bushel. No, what they do is they stand it on a, on a, a stand so it shines before all. We must make our light shine before all. And really what this is, this is what it means to glorify God. When we talk about it a lot, we want to glorify God. This is what it means to glorify God. It means making him known. To proclaim his magnificence to all the world. To celebrate, to share, to enjoy God's greatness. And in glorifying God, and when we do this, we actually experience him even more. It's an even greater and a fuller well. As we glorify God, we experience him more and more. And as a result, we then are filled with greater desire to praise him, a greater desire to glorify him. And don't you see, it's, it's, again, it's this, this type of upward spiral, this beautiful upward spiral of joy and praise. This is our highest joy. This is the chief end of man, to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And while in this fallen world, we, we, we can only get glimpses of this beautiful upward spiral of joy and praise. But my friends, one day, one day, we will experience this in full unhindered by our sinful nature and this fallen world. And that's what we heard a glimpse of when Mike read the New Testament reading from Revelation. We will get this. We will will experience that one day in the new heavens and the new earth. This will be our continual state of, of, of existence, this unending praise and upward spiral for all eternity. And we see this in the very last verse of this chapter. See, we often see in Isaiah... Time frames, they, they will zoom in and out. And, and that's one of the things that makes it difficult studying Isaiah. Because Isaiah goes from his own time to hundreds of years in the future to the time of the Babylonian exile. And then he goes even 700 years in the future to the time of Christ. 
Then he goes to times of, of we're living right now in this in particular chapter. And now what we see in this last verse is a reference to the eternal state. He says, shout and sing for joy, O inhabitants of Zion. This is the new Jerusalem. For great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. God is with them in, in the new Jerusalem. And here we see the eternal praises of the inhabitants of, of Zion, the inhabitants of the new Jerusalem. We will dwell in glory with all the saints from every nation and every tribe and every tongue. But most importantly, the most glorious thing is we will be with God. We will see God. We will see him for who he is. He will be with us continually. And we will be completely free from all the barriers of sin that block us being able to see him. And we will be what we were made to be. My friends, this is the response of the redeemed. This is the response of us in our day, in this day, in every day. It is the response of repentance. It is the response of thanksgiving. It is the response of faith. It's the response of holy obedience to the Lord's call. It's the response of this amazing joy. Response of praise. It's the response of sharing the gospel with all. It's the response of making God known, glorifying him and enjoying him forever. And this must be the response of every single Christian who by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, has been redeemed to glorify God. And if this does not describe anyone here or anyone on the live stream or anyone who could hear my voice, that can change. That can change at this very moment. We are to call upon the Lord. Call out to the Lord. Scripture says, all who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are your redeemed. And we praise you. We praise you for what you have done. We praise you that you are our salvation. And Father, I pray that you will remove the blinders from my eyes, the, the, the hardness in each of our hearts, that we don't rejoice in that fact, that we don't rest in that fact. And that fact does not give us the power to motivate, to be obedient to you and to proclaim this goodness and share it to all we come in contact with. Father, we want to see your name go out. We want to see your, your, your gospel go out like a wildfire. Father, we pray for, for an amazing revival among, in this nation, in this world. Lord, we know you can do it. We know you are good. We praise you. We are looking forward to that day. We will be praising you for all eternity. In Jesus' name, amen. We'll do our song of response.